Amen. You can be seated. I'm glad you guys uh, woke up from your turkey stupors. Hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving, spent time with family and enjoyed that time together. Um, but with Thanksgiving, with the, with the arrival of Thanksgiving comes an, a, a break in our series from Luke as we take time to observe Advent. It's been our tradition here to, to observe Advent. I love Advent, and uh, so ever since we began, it's been our tradition to set this season aside and, and observe the weeks of Advent. Um, ultimately, I appreciate it because it's, it's a very distinct Christian take on Christmas. Uh, Christmas has been co-opted by uh, any uh, number of different traditions, and many of the, many of the things that people uh, celebrate along with Christmas uh, is really not based on anything biblical or even Christ-centered. And, and so I appreciate Advent that it takes everything and it focuses in on the coming of Christ with an eye to his return. So it's not just singularly focused on what happened in the past, but it's also looking forward to what is to come. And that's why I appreciate, appreciate Advent. The word Advent literally means, just simply means coming or arrival. Jesus came. And historically, maybe as early as the fourth century, the church has been uh, uh, observing this, um, this, this time of year. And it's, it's traditionally been kind of the beginning of the church calendar year. So the church would would go through its seasons and its celebrations, and, and they would start with Advent, remembering that Christ came, remembering the promise that He's coming again. Uh, but, but more than just remembering that, it, was, it, it always focused in on the promises being fulfilled in His return. So this morning, as we gather, there's probably three, maybe, maybe more, but I think there's at least three perspectives pr- present in our services this morning. First, I think there's those that you're all about Christmas. Like as soon as Halloween is over, you're putting up Christmas lights, you're digging out ornaments and trees out of your attic, and, and you're getting ready to, to celebrate Christmas. You're making plans for your, um, for your parties and your dinners, and you're setting out plans for when you're going to do what with which family members, and, and you're, you're already buying gifts. Maybe you started buying gifts as early as back in like June or something like that. It, I, I, but you're just all about Christmas, and you're so excited to celebrate Christmas because it's just that wonderful time of year. Well, well, I'm glad you're here, but you're not the only ones here. The reality is that there's people, likely people in this very room, that as they approach holidays, and especially these holidays, there, there's been demonstrator studies that demonstrate that, that not everybody longs and looks forward to celebrating the holidays, that it comes with depression and it comes with struggle and, and feelings of emptiness and being overwhelmed, and it's, it's, it's actually torture for them. It's, it's actually difficult for them. And the truth is, both of those people are probably here. Uh, but you're not the only ones here. There's probably a third perspective, a, a third uh, person here this morning, one who is really too smart for Christmas. You've theologicalized yourself out of a need to celebrate Christmas because you know better than anybody else that Jesus wasn't really born on December 25th. Why in the world will we celebrate his birth on that day? I mean, come on, shepherds are not out in the field in the winter. They do that in the spring, in the fall, for crying out loud. Don't you people know that this is the wrong time? I'm not joining with any worldly celebration and celebrating his birth during the winter. Come on, that's just foolishness. So you're not depressed at Christmas, and you're not, and, and you're not signing up to be someone's secret Santa because you're just too smart for that. Well, when are you celebrating the Advent? When are you celebrating the Incarnation? If you've been here the last couple of weeks, as we were studying through Luke before Christmas, we saw that the Incarnation is mighty and powerful. 
And truly, if you think about what was happening in the Gospel of Luke as he works through the birth narratives, you can't help but see that this was a moment in history that God highlighted with rejoicing and celebration. I mean, really. But, but the beauty of Advent is it doesn't, it doesn't focus in on any Christmas tradition that's of the world, but it has something for every person here, every person that walks through the doors. Because in the spirit of Advent, in the heart of its themes, in the depths of what Advent stands for and is about, we find the base desires of every person met. Truly, if you are here and you love to celebrate Christmas, this adds substance to your celebration. There's a reason to give gifts because we've been given the greatest gift in our Savior. There's a reason to celebrate because we as Christians have the corner on the market of happiness. If anyone in this world can be happy, certainly it's Christians. Certainly it's people who have a bright outlook for the future. Certainly it's people who who know true hope. Certainly it's people who know what it is to, to know love and to be able to express love. In a biblical, a substantial, tangible way. Surely it's Christians who know what true joy is. Surely it's Christians who experience the true peace that comes from Christ and passes understanding. You see, there is reason for you to celebrate. For you who are hurting, Advent, Advent marks the end of your need to mourn. Because in Christ's coming, every hurt is healed. Every, every difficulty overcome. And for those of you that are just too smart, just hang on. Just listen to what He's done in His coming, in His arrival. Just consider what He is doing as He prepares to return. Just consider the promises that He has. And, and I think with me, you will, you will be a person, you will belong to be a person who doesn't just celebrate one day a year, but who appreciates and who rejoices in the Advent from December 25th to December 24th every day of the year. See, it's, it's, it's reason. It's reason to celebrate. It gives us all something to look forward to. Today, as we kick this off, as we, as we seek to see those basic, just the base needs and, and, and desires of our life met, we begin with considering the gift of hope. We're going to be studying from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It's a prophecy of what is to come from, from a, perspective before Christ's first advent, before his first arrival. And Isaiah has, has prophesied. He's, he's been preparing people. He's, he's already been giving messianic prophecies and, and talking about uh, the coming Savior. He's been talking about the coming Messiah. But he comes to this place in, in Isaiah chapter 10 where he begins to talk about the, 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 um, the Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Assyria coming in and invading Israel and overtaking them. And, and then begins, as he moves from that, he begins to talk about Assyria then being judged for their, for their, uh, 
invading Israel, and, and then how God is going to reestablish his remnant in Israel. But, but he leaves off in Isaiah chapter 10, he leaves off with this picture of, of what seems to be desolation, what seems to be the end, and all the trees are cut down, and there's nothing of power standing. There's no, 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 it's, it's a, a forest that has been leveled, and it's nothing but stumps. And it looks like the, 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 um, you know, it's, it's all been cut down. There's, there's no life left. And he picks up and he begins to speak about what God will do from what looks like there's nothing but desolation. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. See, God's not finished yet. The work isn't done yet. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots and shall... <clears throat> shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So now we see that this is, this is uh, an analogy, right? That this is speaking of a person. It's, it's imagery language. It's speaking of a person. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight, his delight, his desire, his, his deepest longing shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I just want to call attention to this verse. I think this verse is key to this passage, to understanding what's going on here and, and what it leads to. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's not going to be a place that doesn't know the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, <clears throat> for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This passage, this, this passage from Isaiah is, is filled with this perspective of the peaceful kingdom that is coming. It's filled with this peaceful, peaceful uh, uh, expression of what is to be. And, and, and depending upon your, depending upon your view of the end days, you're going to approach this passage and you're going to say, well, wait, you know, this is all spiritual or it's, it's, uh, figurative language. Or you're going to approach it and you're going to say, well, this is all literal language. I'm going to, th I, I would approach it and say it's probably both. That in this there is figures and types and shadows. But brothers and sisters, Isaiah is telling us of a time where peace will reign. It will be the norm. Who doesn't long for these days? But we're approaching it, not speaking of peace, but of 
hope. Because it's a promise yet to be fulfilled. Nobody in their right mind puts a lamb in with a wolf unless he's planning to feed the wolf. That's dinner. We know that, that literally this has not been achieved. But, but would Isaiah speak these words if there's not a day coming when the wolf and the lamb would walk together in the field? Would the leopard not lie, at some point lie down with the young goat? See, I think ultimately, if, 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 if you view prophecy in the Scriptures as being fulfilled in, in, uh, in pieces and in parts and in different ways at different times, which I think this is happening, you can see that there is an ultimate day coming. That this will all come to pass. This is something to look forward to. Something to hope for. See, in this passage from Isaiah, we aren't just given the perspective of the coming peace. We are given gift of hope. Something to long for, something to look forward to, something to tell us that better days are coming. In our, in our current use of the word hope, in the way that we use it in our normal everyday conversation, we talk about hope as this optimistic feeling, these optimistic emotions. Like, yeah, it's going to be okay. Like, I'm a person that sees the glass half full. You know, it's really going to be all right. Or, or we speak of it in terms of the desired outcome, the thing that we hope will happen, you know, that express a desire that we think will happen or that we want to happen. And certainly the Scripture uses it in those terms, but it never builds hope out of these wishful thoughts that we use today. Like we talk about things that we hope for that have no foundation in anything substantial. But as the Bible presents its picture of hope, it's different. Certainly it speaks of good things to come. Certainly it speaks of of a better outcome. Certainly it lends itself to optimistic perspectives and emotions. But hope in the biblical sense is confident expectation. It's trust for the future. A future faith, if you will. A a faith in the future. A faith in, in God's work tomorrow. It's the certainty that as dark as the night may seem to get that, that we're certain the sun will rise, that, that we're certain that as, as, as dark as the night is, there will be a tomorrow, that, that we're certain that what God has promised, He will accomplish. That is the biblical perspective of hope. And that in, in this passage, we find this expressed so clearly. Brothers and sisters, true hope. A biblical perspective of hope. True hope is always founded on God's righteous nature and faithfulness to fulfill all of His powerful promises. That is the hope that Isaiah is giving us. Listen, and these two things are are, are important. That's why I called it out in verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist. Righteousness is imperative for hope. Without righteousness, there's no guarantee that what's coming isn't going to, to harm us. It's, it's going to be worse. It's righteousness. It's, it's, it's in Christ, in, 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 this, in this prophecy, in this, in this promise, there's a reality that righteousness rules. It holds it all together. That means that there is no sin. There is no evil. There is no harm. There is no shifting shadow. It's completely pure. 
Righteousness is imperative for this. That everything He does in this work will be for His glory and our good. Second, when you talk about His faithfulness, the faithfulness of the belt that, 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 that girds His loins, it's, it's imperative. Because righteousness, we can have all the good wishes and desires we want, but if He's not faithful, then there's no reason to count on it. You see the difference? I mean, we can talk about good things coming all day long. But if He is not faithful, there's no reason to be concerned with it or even think that it might happen. We know people who break promises. We know people who are unable to accomplish what they say they're going to do. We know people who break deadlines. Maybe, maybe we're those people. Maybe we just couldn't get it all together and fulfill all we said we would do. But He is faithful. He is righteous. And that breeds hope. A real biblical confident expectation for the things to come. I mean, who, who can't use this kind of hope? Who doesn't long for this kind of hope? Who, who doesn't want this kind of certainty in tomorrow? I don't think there's anybody alive that doesn't long for this kind of certainty in what is to come. I think it's a, a base desire in fallen humanity to long for the, for, for the harmony of a world that is not scarred by our sin. I, I think it's the, 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 the part of humanity that in part draws us all together, that makes us all common, that we, we all hold together. We long for a world that's not marked by the sin of our, of our lives, marked by the fruits of our sin. But is there anyone that truly knows this certainty? of better days to come, of a world that's truly filled with peace. It seems, it seems that in the evolutionary frame of our minds, we, we seem to think that we're, we're all getting better. We're all progressing, right? Our views and our, our po- political views and our, our, our perspectives on humanity, we're, we're progressing, we're getting better. Some people think that we need to go back to what we had, the good old days. What were the good old days? I guarantee if you lived in the good old days, you didn't didn't miss that there were still problems in the good old days. We romanticize the past and with empty, really no tangible reason, we think that the, the, the future will be better. We celebrate things like New Year's. And we look forward to it with anticipation as if the changing numbers on a calendar will change our fate. It will fix the problems of our life. Well, let's just stop. Let's think about this. Let's just be real for just a minute. Where can you look and not see trouble? At every point of the compass right now. In every perspective. 
you likely have trouble in your family. You likely find it difficult to be married. Or you find it difficult to be single. There's trouble in our city. Our city. The tip of the belt, uh, the tip of the buckle of the Bible belt. Named over and over for one of the most biblically minded cities in all of America. And yet there is massive trouble in our state. We have been highlighted as one of the most racially tense states by the media over and over this year. There is trouble. There's plenty of trouble. Our nation. We talk of hope. In fact, our president, our, 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 our sitting president won his first election on the message of hope. But if you look around, our nation is filled with hopelessness. And, and, and it's just getting, it seems to be coming overwhelming. And everywhere you turn, there's more trouble. And you don't have to stop here because you look into the world and there's trouble. There's uncertainty. There's difficulty. There's danger. There's unrest. Who doesn't long for a world where peace reigns? I long for that world. I think you likely long for that world. And, and whether anyone outside the church would be willing to admit it, I think we as humans in our fallen nature long to live in a world in which it is not scarred by our sin. A life in which predators no longer prowl around working or, or seeking to devour their prey. Who doesn't long for that kind of life to not be destroyed by things more powerful than you? Who doesn't? Who doesn't long to no longer be, to see prey no longer fed upon instead that the lion would even sit and eat straw, that, that there would be equality across the board and no one would be seeking to overpower the other? Who doesn't long for that world? A place where not even serpents would be worthy of fear. Who doesn't long for that world? A place where danger doesn't even exist for our most innocent and defenseless. Where children would be allowed to lead the leopard and the lion. And, and, and children would be allowed to play with a cobra and, and put their arm in the dest or the den of an adder. We would call DFS. But who doesn't long for that world? We may use different kind of language. We may, we may say it a different way, but I think that ideal rings true in each one of us. I, I, I think the ideal, the, the, the world that we long for of equality, where all would be treated the same, where, where no one is competing for position, a, a world is secure where there's no danger looming in the darkness and no danger looming around the corner and a world of peace where there is no enemy to fear. I think in our hearts we all long for this world and Isaiah is promising this world. That gives us hope. We can try to manufacture it. And we do. 
And we try to manufacture it all, all the time. We assemble armies to fight for peace. As if there's not some oxymoron in that. We bring awareness to our problems. As if bringing awareness is simply going to rid the world of them. We, we make laws to control the problem. Like if we can just legislate the right, if we can just institute the right legislation, it'll change the problem, it'll get rid of it. As if it's going to change the people who are the source of the problem. We start charities and social justice movements to undo the harm caused by the problem. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. We, 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 we need to do these things. We live in a world where these things are necessary. We live in a world completely scarred, completely ravaged by the sin of mankind. So it's a, it's a place where armies must exist. It's a place where awareness must be, where problems must be made aware, where laws were meant to, to control and were meant to legislate good things to protect innocent people. And, and we as a church need to be a people who are moved to, for, with compassion to seek to undo the harm that our sin has caused. We, we can even set aside days for just for a moment we could take our eyes off of it and look at something that truly changes it. It's worth remembering that Christ came because that gives us confidence that He is coming again. You see, we set aside these special days like Christmas. We set aside these special seasons, these holidays, if you will, We do all of these things, but the best we can do to cover our troubles is a thin veneer that comes crashing down the next time the wave of trouble hits. Christmas ends. The lights have to be removed from the houses. They have to be packed up in boxes and stuffed away in an attic. The work that was put off has to be done. And the debt that's incurred must be paid. Brothers and sisters, the hope that we are provided here is that the truth that is coming is that there is a day coming where Christmas will never end. Peace will always reign. Where do we find it? Where, where, where can we find it? If it isn't our laws, if it isn't our social justice movement, if it's not our awareness, or what can we hope and what can we do? Where do we find this hope? True hope is found in the reign of the faithful and righteous King that has come and is coming. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's the one that God was promising. When all the other kings of Judah and Israel failed, when no other king could reign, when Assyria's power failed, the shoot from the stump of Jesse came. He was raised up and he was made 
fruitful. What it tells us is that he's not just going to raise up. It's not just going to be this, this shoot that rises up and, and doesn't accomplish anything. He is going to be fruitful. He's going to accomplish what he sets out to do. His reason for coming is going to be accomplished. And on Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest. That's what he said in verse 2. He is the one who, who the Spirit of the Lord rests on. He said this of himself in Luke chapter 4. We're going to get there one day when we're studying Luke. He, he, he says that the Spirit of the Lord is resting on me. He's the one with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He doesn't just have knowledge of the events. He doesn't just, just have an, a, a, a perspective on the events. He sees the whole diamond and every facet of it. He understands it. He knows the ins and outs. He can see the clarity all the way through. He can see the cut. He understands every perspective there is to understand. He sees it. He knows it. And not only does he know it, but he knows how to use the knowledge of it. That's what it means that he has this wisdom. That he knows what to do. He knows what to do. The spirit of counsel and might. Not only does he know what should be done, he speaks it. He offers counsel that's trustworthy and true. He proclaims a gospel that can be believed because He's the only one that can fulfill it. He has counsel and might. His words are powerful, but His power doesn't stop at what He says and what He does. He, was, he, he had power to work miraculous miracles. He made the blind see the deaf, hear the lame walk. He, he had power that when he died he was able to pick up his life again and live forever he has power to forgive your sins and he has power to give you life this is christ and on him the spirit is is the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the lord he has this awe and this reverence for god that is second to none it's not, it, it, it doesn't take a second place to anything else. It is preeminent and primary in his life. In, in fact, it goes on, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He delights in it. What, an, what a crazy verse for us to read because when we think of fear, we think that's bad. But when it's directed at the Lord, the God of creation who can smite or who can bless, that's the God, that's the God that should be feared. It should come first before all other fears. And as it does, that fear finds mercy. Because as he gives judgment, he doesn't judge based on what can be accomplished or what can be seen with the eyes. He doesn't judge based on social standing or what is said about a person. He doesn't judge based on what a person achieves in this life. He judges based on what he knows by his wisdom and in his righteousness. He will not make a mistake. He will not misjudge. And he will judge with equity. You see, there is mercy in that. Because as we find ourselves poor, unable to find our way to Him, as we find ourselves meek, unworthy of Him, that's where we find Him. But it comes with a warning. Because not only is He powerful enough, and not only is He willing, not only is He able to give you life, He is able to bring 
destruction to the wicked. In fact, it's inevitable. See, we long for a world that is, that, that is marked with equality. We long for a world that is marked with peace and security. And the reality is because of our sin, because of the wickedness of man, this destruction is inevitable. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. He will not do anything. Jesus will not do anything that is wrong. There was no sin in him, nor was there deceit in his mouth. There is no, sin, no, no darkness, no shifting shadow. He is always, has always, will always be righteous. And all he does will always be right. And he is faithful. This is Jesus. He is the one promised in Isaiah. Well, how can we know this? How can we know? How can we know that, that what Isaiah is promising comes through Christ and it's not just some other king along the way? Because there is a, a perspective of fulfillment that comes through Hezekiah. So many people would point to Hezekiah and say he's the near-term fulfillment of this prophecy, but he's not the end of it. He's not the end of it. He's not the one ultimately being pointed to. Just another type and shadow pointing to the one to come. How do we know then it's Jesus? Because what the Old Testament conceals, the New Testament reveals. And in his letter to the Romans, as Paul provides us unparalleled, unparalleled detail of the gospel, he writes these words. Romans 15, 12 through 13, he says, And again, Isaiah says, The root of of Jesse will come. The root of Jesse will come in that day. The root of Jesse. The one that's come from Jesse. He's referring back exactly to this passage. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him with a Gentile's hope. Don't miss that. In him. The person that Isaiah was referring to, the person that Paul is referring to, he will be the source of our hope. He goes on to say, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. See, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that Isaiah was referring to Jesus. That, that even today, in light of His first coming, we have Hope, we have confident expectation and we can certainly trust in the future that He will accomplish these things, that one day peace will reign. And in the context of the New Testament, we find ourselves much like those that were the remnant of Israel that Isaiah had referred to in Isaiah chapter 10. Waiting. Waiting. In some form and fashion, spiritually we are receiving this peace. We are certainly being given the, the, the hope of the, of the days to come. We are certainly able to rejoice in His coming, but we are waiting for the day that this will be consummated and that the party that will never end begins. The wedding supper of the Lamb, who's to come? See, Paul lets us see that we are waiting on Jesus the same way the Israelites were waiting on Jesus. And let me caution you. 
Whereas it would be easy to run out of this, uh, to walk out of this message and think that I just gotta, I gotta chase after that peace and, and just because now I know it's coming, I can have hope. True hope isn't the result of knowing what is coming, but the fruit born out of faith in Jesus. There's plenty of people that know what's coming. They find no hope in it because they have no faith in Jesus. He is the source. You can, you can pursue hope. You can pursue peace. You can pursue joy. And you can pursue love. You can pursue these things and you will miss them all. But when you pursue Jesus, you get everything. Everything. The gift of hope is received not by chasing hope, but by trusting Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I long for this hope. I, I, I'm sorry, I long for this day and I have confident expectation that it will come because I trust Jesus. That is where hope comes from. Not in anything we have to do. Not in anything we can offer up. But in His faithfulness and in His righteousness, we can trust Him. And when we do, when we do, we find he longs for us to abound in this hope. That's why he came. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for coming. Thank you for, for working on our behalf and doing for us what we couldn't do. Thank you for bringing fruit out of what appeared to be desolation Thank you for not leaving us to our own devices and our own feeble and impotent attempts to, to bring about peace and reconciliation. Thank you that in you we gain everything. Would you help us to believe you more fully, to know you more completely, to pursue you instead of all the things that come with you. As he sings in your name, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.